Recently, the news, the news outlets were reporting that the FTC has proposed a rule that would prohibit employers from imposing non-compete clauses on workers. They argue that non-competes constitute an unfair method of competition, and they therefore violate Section 5 of the Federal Trade Commission Act. Non-competes are unfair, and therefore they violate federal law. So I thought we'd discuss tonight several halachic chuvas on the topic of non-compete agreements. Discussion of this goes back, in terms of modern-style non-compete agreements, goes back at least a couple of hundred years to the time of the Chasim Sofer. So we're going to discuss several chuvas that deal with more or less recognizable non-compete agreements and see what the post can say. Now, we should note that the the postcom are not discussing the modern concerns about whether non-competes are fair to workers. That's not the primary concern. The primary questions are, is there a proper Kenyan? Is there a halachic mechanism by which these non-competes are binding? They do discuss certain questions of fairness as well, but the fairness arguments are usually advanced, are going to be advanced in favor of the non-compete being binding, that it would be unfair in certain circumstances for the employee to take advantage of his employer by taking knowledge that he got from him that, that, the, that, that the employer provided him and then using that knowledge against the employer. We'll see, this, we'll see the situations that they discuss. The, the economic nature of the situations might not be quite the same as modern non-competes, but on the whole, the situations are fairly recognizable ones. As we'll see, on the whole, Halacha has a somewhat accommodating attitude toward non-compete agreements. First tshuva is a tshuva in the Chasim Sofer. Chasim Sofer apparently wrote several tshuvas touching on this question, this particular incident that he discusses here. I've only seen one of them, but it seems from some other sources there may have been more than one. He himself refers to an earlier tshuva. His his case involved a dispute between two shochtim. One was named Rabbi Chaim, and one was named Rabbi Dov. Rabbi Chaim apparently had taught Rabbi Dov shechita, and he had certified him, he had given him a Ksav Kabbalah, a certification that he, wa- that he certified him as being a competent shochet. And in lieu of this, as a condition of this, we'll see exactly a condition of what? A condition of the tutelage or a condition of granting the certification. But in lieu of something, he demanded that Rabbi Dov sign a document declaring swearing and accepting under penalty of cherem, using all kinds of forceful language that he would not shecht, that he would not shecht with a, in, in the city of the teacher of Rabbi Chaim without his permission. Chasim Sofer provides the, de- the word for word, the detail, letter for letter, he says, os os, the details of the document that Rabbi Dov signed, in which he says that I, Rabbi Dov, the undersigned, I, I'm a Kabbal, I will not do shechit or bedika independently on my own without Reb Chaim's uh, imprimatur, without his uh, sign-off, um, without his permission. And he says, the, and, and I'm signing this, uh, I'm signing this that, that I won't do any kinds of animals, large animals, small animals, cattle, birds, all this uh, in, in Reb Chaim's territory, in the... In, in the city of Rav Chaim and in certain villages which were considered the suburbs or part of the territory of Rav Chaim. He won't do it for free, he won't do it as, as, a, as a paid service, etc., etc., and he goes into details about all the things he won't do, 
and he uh, it was a form of hasagas gvul of improper competition, and he he, he swore and he and he said he, he claimed he wrote he wrote in this document that he accepted under, accepted under penalty of the oath under penalty of a cherem. <coughs> under he took a shvuah benikitas chefetz, a, a more stringent kind of shvuah where the person taking the shvuah holds a, a safer. In this case, he says he was holding a chumish, a chumish hazesh, and he oches ata biyadi. I am now holding in my hand, swear on a Bible. And the, he, took a, he took a binding airtight oath full of lots of, full of, lots of language meant to strengthen the, strengthen the oath. And that's what he did. He signed a document conceding that he had taken such a shvua. And the question was, he didn't want to honor it. He, 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 no, he no longer wanted to follow this oath that he had conceded to have taken. He had various arguments. He says that, first of all, there was a question as to uh, there was a question as to whether he had actually taken the shvua or just signed a document declaring he had taken the shvua. Says the chazam surfer doesn't really matter because the because the document itself constitutes a shvua. First of all, the document itself might constitute a shvua. He says, and even if it doesn't, shvua b'chzav, a written shvua. There's a discussion in halacha whether it has the binding status of a shvua. But either way, he conceded hadas baldin. He had taken a real shvua. So either way, he's bound by the shvua. Now he says that the whole thing wasn't true. He never took the shvua. He says that the Rabbi Chaim forced him to sign this document because he threatened to withhold his Kabbalah unless he signed this. It wasn't true. He just made him sign it. He has, he had certain issues why why he didn't feel that that he should be binding. We're not going to get into the, the the particulars of the case why he felt there were mitigating circumstances, but we're interested primarily most of this most of this chasim sofer has to do with the laws of shvua, but in the course of the tshuva the chasim sofer has a uh, an extremely important couple of lines which he tosses in almost as uh, almost in passing. He writes. In the last section of the tshuva that I included in the handout, he writes, He addresses the rabbi who was, with whom he was corresponding. He says, I already wrote to you, I already told you. In our case, The whole discussion, he did take a shvua, he didn't take a shvua, the, we, we, we accept his shtar as a binding admission, we don't accept the shtar. The whole question of shvua aside, he said, even in the absence of any shvua, he is still bound by this condition under the laws of Choshen Mishpat, even absent the Shvua, absent the formal oath. I should note, by, just by background here, Shvua today is very, very uncommon. Among from Jews, from Jews rarely take Shvuas, even when they interact with government or the court that has a, an oath process. From Jews commonly try to avoid the oath. They, that, that's why the government sometimes says you can affirm. And this is a minute we've discussed in the past, that the, the minute developed over centuries, that from Jews try very, very hard, pious Jews, to avoid taking shvua, because the punishment of a shvua is very, very strict. The shvua is considered a very, very strict avera, it's considered a chil Hashem, to swear falsely, because you're swearing in the name of God, and so on. So, <coughs> so shvua, we try to avoid shvuas. In earlier generations, however, shvuas were much more common. First of all, there were shvuos in court, where the court, uh, there's entire Masechta shvuos about this, Masechta shvuos about this, shvuos permeate all of Chosh and Mishpat, there are many cases where the court demands a shvua from, the, from one of the litigants. So shvua was, was very common as part, of, as part of civil procedure. Shvua was also common, though, in various types of contracts, such as this one. When a person wanted to, when people wanted to draw up a contract, they wanted to ensure that it would be as binding as possible, that there, would be a, that there would be as little a chance as possible of somebody wiggling out or somebody defaulting on the contract. They would often use the language of shvua 
to make the contract more, make breaching the contract more daunting. Parties would take an oath that they would abide by the contract. This is not done so much today, certainly not in Ashkenazic circles. The, 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 healthy, the healthy fear of Shvua, the healthy Yerushalayim-based concern with taking a, a full Shvua has pushed Shvua to the sidelines. So Shvua is very uncommon today in the Ashkenazic world in particular. Svardim are a little more open to Shvua. I always tell the story that one context in which Svardim typically took Shvuas as part of a, as part of a contract was at weddings. The Svardim famously did not accept, or did not universally accept, Rabbi Gershom's bans on polygamy and on unilateral divorce. So what they often used to do, though, was that the chassan would take a, would take a shvua at the chuppah, at the wedding, the chassan would take an oath, a solemn oath, that he would not take advantage of certain, thing, of, of certain op- options that he might have recording talacha. For example, polygamy, which is mutter midin the chassan would swear he would not take a second wife without his first wife's permission. Or, or unilateral divorce, he would swear he wouldn't divorce her without a mutual agreement. Or another common one was he would swear that he wouldn't compel her to leave her hometown unless she was willing, that he wouldn't demand that she follow him to a different, uh, to a different, place, uh, to a different place of residence. So there were various shvuas that Svardim used to, used to take as part of the marriage ceremony to guarantee the woman, typically, certain, uh, certain rights. So when I, was in, when I was in Lakewood, we used to hear shiurim on Evan Ezer from Rabbi Chacham Asher Hachual, a very distinguished Svardik Talmud Chacham, who was a very proud Svardi and was a tremendous expert and uh, well-versed in Svardik tradition, but he had also studied in Ashkenazi yeshivas, and he also was well-connected with Ashkenazi postkim. So this is a long time ago, so I'm not certain I have the story exactly correct, but I believe he once told us that he once asked Rav Yashuv to Masadra Kedushin at the wedding of a son or a grandson or a child or a grandchild. Rav Yashuv said he would do it under two conditions. One of them was no shvuot. He's not administering shvuot. Rav Yashuv had the healthy, the healthy fear of shvuot that Ashkenazim had, and he, wouldn't, he would not get involved in making shvuot. Rabbi Hachual told us, you know, mildly, indignantly, he said, this is not some kind of, uh, this is not some kind of uh, semi-frum Svardic practice we have today. This is an ancient practice, going back to Rishonim. We didn't make this up today because we, we lack Yerushamayim. This was an ancient practice. We used to do shuos <coughs> as part of the wedding ceremony. But beyond weddings, if you read the Svardic halacha in particular, they had shuos attached to all kinds of contracts. You, you got a mortgage, you took out a loan. The, the borrower would swear to the lender, I swear I'll pay you back on time. They took a shvur. Well, they would write they took a shvur. It was very, very common to, to give contracts more teeth by putting in shvurs. So that's what happened here. They were apparently Ashkenazim, and that's what happened here as well. There was an actual shvur, or they conceded taking a shvur in the shtar. So the Chassam Sofer says, we can debate whether the shvur in this case actually occurred, whether it's binding. But even if it is not, he says, it doesn't matter. Even without the shvur, on, on simple Hoshan Mishpat grounds, there is an obligation to honor the commitment not to compete. Why? He says, Chayev Lakayim to know. He says, He asked him Lakayim his tonight. Why? Because he only certified him on that condition. If the, the worker, the trainee, the, the person who, who was taught and promised not to compete, if he would violate his condition, a surprising argument, perhaps, he violates the prohibition against the prohibition against failing to pay an employee what you owe him. Now again, the Torah says, lotashok means don't, 
don't I- illegally, improperly withhold, the wages of a poor worker. Typically, you think the Torah is talking about a rich, a rich employer who has a poor worker. The workers are typically in the capitalist system. The workers are the ones who don't have much, and the bosses are the ones who have the money. The Torah is telling you, uh, the Torah is telling you respect the schar ani v'avion. Here, if anything, it might have been the other way around. The employer was the one who had the knowledge, was established in the field. He was the one teaching this, uh, this upstart. If anything, the upstart sounds more like the ani, but it doesn't matter. La halacha, the, the, obliga- the prohibition against withholding schar from a worker is independent of the relative economic positions of the two parties. It might be more chamer. Hashem might consider it more of an avera if you're rich and you take advantage of someone poor, as opposed to if you're poor and you take advantage of someone rich. But the ikar adin, the ikar lav, applies regardless of who's rich and who's poor. Says the chasim sofer that this is char pulaso shel rav chaim shel Their deal, they had an economic agreement that rav chaim would teach rabbi dov, and rabbi dov, in lieu of that, in exchange, in consideration of that, would refrain from competing with him. Says the chasim sofer. That is considered compensation. It's not financial compensation, but it's a valuable compensation. The compensation for being taught was that he committed himself to not compete against him. Therefore, if you fail to honor your word, if you fail to keep your word, you are failing to pay the proper compensation, and you violate a law of of failing to compensate your, your teacher for the work he did now, the Chassam Sofer is a little bit uh, ambiguous here about whether the work is the teaching or the work is the granting of the certification. We'll see more about that in the next Shuvah that, that we'll see in the Chassid Lavram. But generally speaking, the Chassam Sofer said, you have a deal, you, you had an agreement, the agreement went both ways. He provided you with tutelage and certification. You agreed that at least in part, part of your compensation was that you would not compete against him according to the terms that you agreed to. Therefore, if you compete... You are, you are violating your, your binding commitment to pay the agreed-upon compensation. This is a famous rule in halacha that even though, as we always say, most types of agreements in halacha require kinyan to be binding, a verbal agreement is typically not binding, one of the major exceptions is the, agree, is the agreement to pay a worker. If you tell a worker, paint my house, babysit my kids, uh, attend my garden, and I'll pay you... XYZ, I'll pay you $100. There's no Kenyan, it doesn't matter. If he worked on the, on the representation that you would pay him, you automatically become Chayev to pay him. No written contract, no Kenyan. As long as you had an agreement that, he would, that, that you would compensate him in whatever, according to whatever terms you agreed, as soon as he does the work, you become Chayev in that compensation. Says the Chasim Sofer, that applies here as well. This is not the traditional form of compensation as cash. This is compensation in terms of your agreeing to the non-compete agreement. And if you fail to honor your non-compete commitment, you are depriving him of the rightful compensation to which he's entitled based on the agreement that you had with him. So that's just three lines buried in a larger tshuva. Most of the tshuva is about the shvua and so on. But in, but in these three lines, the Chesim Sofer has a major chiddush, a chiddush of profound importance that failing to honor a commitment to, 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 to uh, refrain from competing, if the commitment was given in exchange for a service that was provided to you, that is considered a failure to pay schar pu'ula, to pay agreed-upon compensation, and you violate the law of lo sashuk schar anivavir. That's the chasim sofer's tshuva, at least the part of it that we are going to be discussing. Now, in the tshuva's chesed lavram, 
So the of Avram was a sefer by Rabbi Avram Tumim. There are several sefarim by that name. The one in question was he was a contemporary of the Sofer, Rabbi Avram Tumim. He wrote tshuvas called Chesed Lavram. He has a tshuva addressed to the Chasim Sofer. It was in the in, in Yudbeis Elul, the year Tuf Kuf Tzadi Ches. So that is that is eighteen thirty eight. So he says he has a tshuva addressed to Lahagon Hamuvok Tzadik Yisur Olam from Moshe Sofer, the Av Basin of Pressburg. Chasim Sofer. This was almost at the end of the Chasim Sofer's life. He was the the God Ladar, certainly the God Ladar in much of Europe. So the Ches Lavram begins his tshuva with. Uh, with an acknowledgement of the Chasim Sofer's greatness, he says, "The Rosh of Akdoshim have Rikul and Negdi, Chayin Chayin Lahadras Gaono Alsher Zuchisi Lahanas Meoro." I'm so glad that I have been able to benefit from the light of the Chasim Sofer's Torah. However, he says, then he goes, as we often see, he goes on the, the counterattack. He says, "Adoni, my master, the Chasim Sofer, you critiqued my tshuva, what, what I wrote on this topic." He says, "Bekamadvarim," and you did so. He says. Lasibas miuti you know bidvarai, at a failure to properly consider what I wrote. Your your criticisms, he says, uh, evince a failure to to properly uh, understand what I wrote. Basically, he, he wasn't saying the Chassam Sofer is wrong. He's saying had the Chassam Sofer read what he actually wrote, he would have seen that the Chassam Sofer's objections were obviated or were addressed by what he actually wrote. Velu yova doni betuva losim eno abedalak muktavi. If you uh, if if you have the, the if you'll have the goodness to to read more carefully what I wrote, he says, you would see that I have avoided all your objections. And now he says, Vata Basi Bhtsara, I'll call to Vakadash. Now I'm going to address point by point, he says, the, the many of the points that you raised, all the all the novel and interesting points that you raised, I'm going to address them and explain my position. So again, much of the chuva is not our concern tonight, but he has a he has a paragraph where he addresses this issue, the issue of the issue of whether a non-compete agreement is binding under under the law of Los Ashok, under the obligation of, a, of of an employee of a of an employer to pay to pay uh, compensation for the services he received. So he says, Odra Isi Lahadras Gaono, he says, I saw you, the Khatam Sofer, you wrote that regardless of all the talk about Shvuas, Rabbi Dove is prohibited from shechting in the territory of Rabbi Chaim. It's Bechlal Schar Sacher, because Bishvil Pulaso Shalomdo Venosan Loksav Teuda, his Chayavis Atmo Dlalamifsa Because of the, the service of teaching him and providing him certification, he, he committed himself to not compete. Lodomila told you about Mirani. The Gemara says, in certain cases, if somebody has you over a barrel, you're running away from jail, and the ferryman says, "Oh, you need a, you, you need a ride across this river. That'll be ten thousand dollars." So the the halach is that you can agree, but it's not binding. You can later say, it, "I never meant it. I was desperate. You were you were uh, you were extorting money from me." You can, it's a complicated circuit. We're not going to get into that. Why you can do that exactly? But in that case, the Gemara says you can later renege on your commitment because it was given under duress and it wasn't fair. Says the Chassam Sofer that, that that's not the, that's not the issue here. That's not, this is not like told you about Irani, because this is, this is legitimate schar, haroi, good. So he's quoting the Chesim Sofer, it doesn't sound like it's exactly the tshuva we have, it may have been the earlier tshuva of the Chesim Sofer, that he says, kvar kasavti, so it may have been this, it may have been this, it may have been, may have been this earlier tshuva, the, but in any event, the Chesim Sofer, stated his position that the obligation to honor your agreement to refrain from competing is binding again as Char Pu'ula, as, uh, because of Los Asher.
So says the Chesed Lavram, it seems to me, Kihadras Gaono Dima, that you seem to be understanding this case, that this commitment was given before we started to learn, before we started to, to the teaching, it, it was stipulated up front, um, I will teach you Shechita, but you have to agree to a non-compete agreement. I'll train you, but you have to agree not to compete against me in consideration of the service that I'm providing you. Avalokainu, says the Chesed Lavram, says the, the Rabbi Avram to him, that's not the case. They did not discuss this, he says. When, when he initially studied Shechita, they did not discuss any non-compete. He says, after he was already taught and it was time for him to get his certification so he could take it uh, and present it as, uh, as evidence of his competence, of his, he, he could have his credentials, then he held it up. Then the, the teacher turned around and said, okay, I'm not going to issue your certification until you, you, you guarantee me this non-compete. So, that, so it wasn't stipulated initially as payment for, as, as in consideration for the service of being taught. It was simply a, an, an ex, a kind of extortion that he demanded, an apparent extortion. He demanded a new non-compete commitment before he would release his credentials, before he would release, before he would issue him his certification. He says, The Chesed Avram then has a then has a uh, complicated discussion, which we're not going to get into, that is- the issuing of the certification itself, you're not supposed to charge for. In general, you're not supposed to charge for doing any mitzvah, for, even for teaching Torah, for sitting on a bastin, for being a dayan, for a physician post saying you're not supposed to charge for, a mohel. You're not really allowed to charge for any- doing any mitzvah. So issuing the certification is a matter of mitzvah, so you really shouldn't be charging for that. So... If you weren't asking for the non-compete in, in consideration for the actual teaching, the teaching is something you can charge for. It takes time, it takes effort. That, that's, actually, that, that, that's actually one of the heterim for, the, for, the, for these various mitzvahs, for Dine Torah and for, and, 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 and for teaching Torah and for being a Dayan, that if the Dayan gives up other opportunities, if it takes time and effort, and if he has cost involved, he, he's, allowed, he's allowed to build for that. But just to issue the certification, he says, that's just a mitzvah to certify him, and then you're not, you're not, it's not, that's not hard work, so why are you charging for that? He goes back and forth on that. But at the end of the day, so again, putting aside this whole discussion about whether it's legitimate to charge compensation just for signing the, the certification as opposed to the teaching, but at the end of the day, the Chesed Lavram agrees to the Chesed Sofer. He says, Palkalpanim, after this whole pilpul, he says, Divrei hadras ge'ono bazem miskaimim, that I, at the end of the day, I agree that you are correct. That, you, that fundamentally, he agrees to the Chasim Sofer that the obligation to, 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 to make good on the compensation you promised, that, uh, that, that is, is, is a binding obligation. Chas Shalom, he says, to, to encroach on the Parnassah of the teacher, where you promised not to in lieu of the service he provided you. And that's in addition to the Shavu and the Cherem. So the bottom line is, putting aside these complications about whether you can charge just for the certification, in general he says, certainly if there was a service provided, if there was something he's allowed to charge for, and, 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 he, and, and what he chooses to charge is your commitment to refrain from competing, so that is binding in halacha, the, un, under the laws of Schar Pu'ula, of, of Los Ashok, that the, so the, the, the Chesim Sofer and the Chesim Lavram, these two great contemporaries, both rule, that a non-compete that was signed in lieu, in consideration of the, of the service provided, of being taught valuable skills, is something that is binding under the laws of Schar Pu'ula, under the, under the Lav Daraisa of Los Ashok. Turn now, we'll turn now to a couple of 20th century tshuvas. 
One is in the Sefer Netzach Yisrael. This is, I think, the first, this is possibly the first tshuva, maybe not, maybe not quite the first tshuva, but this is one of the rare chances we have to study a tshuva by a Rabbi Grossman. So Netzach Yisrael was, a, was one of several svarim written by Rabbi Yisrael Grossman. Rabbi Yisrael Grossman was a great Talmud Chacham in Yerushalayim, in the, in the, I think Yerushalayim. He was in, um, well, he, was, he, he, he studied in Haifa and Bnei Brak. He was, he was active in, he was active around the middle, middle of the, middle of the last century. He was active in community affairs, but he was also a great Talmud Chacham, besides being a Rashiva and, uh, and, and someone who, who led the, the, the Haredi. He was, a, he, he, was, he, he, he was together with people like Rav Pesach Frank, Rav Zelig Ruven Bengish, Rav Zelman Meltzer, that should be in a Rav. In addition to being a, a leader of the Haredi community, he was all, and a Rashiva, he was also a, a distinguished Dayan. And he wrote a number of Svarim on Chosh Mishpat, which I, in, in his politics, he seems to have been pretty extreme, but in, but in his Svarim on, or he seems to have been a pretty, pretty much, you know, solid Haredi. Uh, but in his, in, in, in his, in his Chosh Mishpat stuff, I, I find him very, very, his writing is very, maybe I shouldn't say but, but, but his writing is very, very attractive. It's very, very lucid. It's clear, logical, well-organized. He has a number of svarim on many aspects of of, contem- of Mishpat applied to contemporary or near-contemporary circumstances. And in one of his tshuvas, he has a discussion of a non-compete agreement. He describes it as follows. I don't know if all his cases are, 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 were actual cases or some of them are artificial to see shalacha, but the case he describes is as follows in his sefer, Netzach Yisrael. He's the father, by the way, of... His son is perhaps better known today. His son is Rabbi Yitzchak David Grossman, the Migdal HaEmek, and a, a, a famous activist, uh, social, a fa- famous uh, social, uh, social character, famous for being for, for providing friendship and and and, and warmth. And uh, he won, I think, the Israel Prize for his for his services on behalf of uh, people in need and youth and so on. But the father was Rabbi Yisrael Grossman, who was, a, as I said, a great Talmud Chacham and a great Dayan. And he discusses the following scenario. Factory owner, that in the manufacture of his product, of his merchandise, there are professional secrets, trade secrets. He stipulated with someone who was going to take employment with him that he'll hire him, he'll teach him the industry, but a Tznai Kafel, a clear condition, a clear precondition that had to be accepted, that if he ever leaves his service, if he ever leaves his business, he cannot work in this industry for anyone else, nor can he open up an independent competing factory. And the other person accepted this. Uh, it's noteworthy, by the way, that, that in both these chuvers there don't seem to be time limits. Modern non-compete cases often have a time limit, a certain number of years. In the final tshuva we're going to see of Rav Tzvi Shpit in Mishpatei Torah, he talks about a tshuva with a time limit, but, but these tshuvas are dealing with open-ended, indefinite, permanent bans against competition. And so in this case of the Netzach Yisrael, he says that the person apparently accepted the tzai, didn't, didn't object. Now he says he worked for 10 years, his pater he, he left his service, and now he wants to open up a competing factory or to take employment in, in this industry for someone else. Can the employer object? And can, he says, can the, can the employer object? Or is there an ister, even if the employer has no legal right to object, is there a moral obligation, klabesh maya, 
Is he doing the right thing by heaven if he begins to compete in, in violation of his condition? That, that was the question. Does he have a, a legally enforceable right to block him? And does the worker have a moral obligation recognized by halacha not to do this? Says Rabbi Grossman, He's not allowed to open a factory. Um, not allowed to open a factory manufacturing this merchandise using the information that he learned from the factory owner. Nor is he allowed to work for somebody else in this industry. All because of the tanai that he accepted. He accepted the tanai. The tanai is binding. That he says that, and and the, the, this is the he, he, his chuvas, his style is he gives a summary ruling first, and then he goes into detail with sources afterward. This is he says a form of schar puula, like we saw in the chesed sofer and the chesed lavram. It's the in, in lieu of compensation for being taught the industry. This is going to be the compensation that that I'll agree not to compete. And if he opens up his own factory, making the same merchandise, it works for somebody else. He violates the law of Los Ashuk. Furthermore, <coughs> the law of Los Ashuk is what the Chasim Sofer and the Chasim Lavram talk about. Furthermore, he violates the, an ethical obligation, a halachically, halachically well-defined ethical obligation to keep your word. We'll discuss that later in the Tshuva, an obligation to keep your word. And the Gemara calls this faithlessness or... Uh, the lacking, lacking emuna, lacking, lacking honesty. We'll discuss that uh, present. He begins by bringing the Chasim Sofer. He says, in the case of the Chasim Sofer, you, so, so the Chasim Sofer argued that since, <coughs> since Rabbi Chaim gave the Ksav Kabbalah to Rabbi Dov on condition that he wouldn't shaft in his city, in his territory, without his permission, and the Chasim Sofer argues that this is Schar Pu'ula, he says it's Loshat, it's Losashuk, he says, in our case also, we can make the same argument that the factory owner, he taught him the industry, he taught him the trade secrets, and he deserves to be compensated for that. He has the right to be compensated for the education he provided. Even though, in the course of ten years, he, he certainly used that information for the benefit of his employer, he got paid for that, he says. because but, but for being taught, he was never paid, he says. He, he didn't pay for the knowledge. And when, when the employer trains you... you know, he doesn't charge you for the training. The training is provided as part of your job. So the training essentially is a free and valuable, a valuable free service he's providing to you. So any conditions he attaches are simply compensation for that, he says. We don't think of it like that. We think that the employee trains me. It's for his own good. It's for his own benefit. I don't know him anything. That's true. If he, if he doesn't ask for anything, then he's doing it for free. But if he's providing you valuable training which can be used for... which can be used in a different, in a different job... And uh, then he has the right to charge for it. And if he chooses to charge in the form of a non-compete, as we saw on the Chesim Sofer, that's, that, that's the schar. That is his schar. And if you do that, you're over Losashuk. Another thing that happens is, not just non-compete, sometimes what happens is the, your, your, your employer wants you to have certain skills. So he, he pays for a training. He pays for you to, uh, when, when my wife was a lawyer, the, she, the, she was part of a program where, where she actually started working for a law firm as she was in school, and, and part of the arrangement was that they would actually pay for law school. That's, uh, that, that, a law school education is a, valuable, is a valuable possession that you can use after you leave the, the service of the first company, but the company provided it on the hope that you would stay with them. I don't think there were conditions attached even, on the hope that you would stay with them. And use your use your law uh, your law education to to work for them, 
I had a friend who, uh, who worked who worked in cybersecurity, so his company wanted him to get around here. Everyone does government work, so he wanted. They, 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 so they, they they thought he'd be more valuable to them if they if he got uh, a certain level of certification, and there was a security clearance, I think, and they paid for that. And then it turned out that he left the company. So that they, he left because they didn't have a position for him, but, but, but and they were gracious about it. They said, look, you know, we, we know that we pay this for you, but if we, we don't have a proper position, so we understand if you leave and take, if you leave and you take your certification that we paid for somewhere else. But, the, but in general, the point is, if the company provides you, if the business provides you some valuable, some valuable some skills, some valuable knowledge and information, they have the right to charge. And if, and if, they, and if, and if the charge, if, the, if, if what you agreed to, to pay instead of cash was the commitment not to compete, that's binding. That becomes a binding obligation in terms of your obligation to pay compensation for the services, for the service you received. You don't need tonight. Kofoli says you don't need all the, in certain cases, conditions have rules, exactly how they have to be phrased, very technical rules in, in the format of the, of the language. That doesn't apply here. That, that has to do with conditions. This is not a condition. This is simply the agreement to pay compensation. There are no rules. When, when you hire an employee, you don't need to worry about what, rule, what language you use. Whatever you say you're going to pay, you have to pay. Furthermore, he adds a very important point. He said, you can't just say, okay, so I'm, so I'm not keeping the non-competes. I'll pay you the value of, I'll pay you the, value of, the, of the teaching. How much is it worth? You, you taught me for, there's 100 hours. I'll pay you at a rate of, I don't know, $50 an hour. So if there's 100 hours, I'll give you $5,000 and we'll, we'll call us even. Doesn't work like that, says the says Netzach Israel repeatedly. You can't say I'll pay you now in cash because that wasn't the agreement. The the the, the, the halacha, the bedrock of halacha, many areas of Choshen Mishpat, particularly employment, is that contract is king. Whatever you agreed to is binding. You agreed the compensation would be not to compete. You didn't agree that it would be five thousand dollars in cash. You agreed that the payment for the service would be a commitment not to compete, and that that's the compensation that you owe. You can't uh, you can't renegotiate the terms now. What you owe is the, is the obligation to respect the non-compete agreement, and that is what you have to do. Then he brings the Chesed Lavram, who challenged the Chesed himself, where he says, but at the end of the day, he says, that the, he, the way he understands the Chesed Lavram, I did not see this quite in the Chesed Lavram, the way he understands the Chesed Lavram, he says that his objection is only to, the, to, the, to, to getting the non-compete for the certification, but if, but if you're also getting it for the, for the work that you did, for the teaching, Certainly that, that he agrees to the Chesim Surfer's principle. Then there is an element of Schar Pu'ula and Los Sashuk. And therefore, both these Gedolim, the Chesim Surfer and the Chesim Lavram, agree that if you stipulate a non-compete agreement in, in exchange for the service that you're providing of teaching him, that is something that you have the right to charge for. He goes on, he makes various other arguments. We're not going to go through the entire tshuva. But the final part of the tshuva is he brings the Gemara of Mechus Ramana. This is a Gemara that I talk about all the time. The Gemara in Bav Metziah says, Darshan Psukim, one of them is, my wife likes to quote this all the time, She'eris Yisrael lo yasu avlov lo yidabru chazav, the remnant of Israel will not do iniquity and will not speak falsely. The, the Gemara derives from various Psukim and Chumash and Navi that there is an obligation to keep your word. Absent any Kenyan, absent any contract, absent any uh, compensation for services, Absent any of the, of the structures and frameworks that generate enforceable obligations, a simple promise, a simple verbal commitment, not, not even the word promise, a simple verbal statement that you will do such and such, in many cases that, is, that creates a moral obligation. Not enforceable in Beistin. In Beistin we always point out, in Beistin, of course, the rule is you have to have a Kenyan or Scarpula or various other conditions 
that generate binding obligations, but a moral obligation is created by a simple promise. You promise to do something, you have to do it. We, we always tell the story that I was, a number, several years ago, I was giving a share on this topic, my Parsha share, and as I was running out of the house Sunday morning, my wife was telling me that uh, my, my son Simcha was, was young at the time, younger than he is now, and my wife was telling me with a, with a little bit chagrin that I think that she had, she had told Simcha we, she would make pancakes, but she doesn't have eggs, so she's not going to be able to make pancakes. So I told her, that's, eggs are available in the store. A promise is a promise. A promise is binding. As long as it's possible to fulfill it, there's a real issue here. Of, uh, of, of, we have a moral obligation to do what we said we would do. In certain cases, if the, if the circumstances changed to the point that you'd have to drive 50 miles to buy eggs, maybe that would be different. But if the eggs are available in, uh, five minutes away in the grocery, then quite likely that's a binding obligation. That, and the fact that uh, the fact that the recipient of the promise is a child, that doesn't matter. That, that's, uh, promises are promises. Anyway, this is a halacha, that, the, that, uh, that, our, that our promise is considered, it creates a moral obligation, not an enforceable one in court, but a moral obligation. Let some post can say we can call you a Russia for not doing it. Basin can announce they can't compel you to, 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 to they can't they can't compel you to keep your promise, but they can call you a Russia for failing to do so. So anyway, he brings the he brings the postkim. He says that he says that this is a that, that, that this is a commitment. He says it's an essay and Isra Daraisa, the post some post can say, and therefore in addition to the in addition to the question of compensation for services, there is a binding moral obligation you have to keep your word. You promised you wouldn't do this, and therefore the promise itself creates a strong moral obligation to keep the promise. Therefore, he concludes the Hamaskana. His conclusion is Shalfi Halacha Asur Lavaretzalacher. It is prohibited for you to work for someone else and to take advantage of the Sodota Mikzoa, the trade secrets that you learn from the factory owner. According to the Psaka of the Chasim Sofer, there's a Chiv on Beistin to stop you from doing this because this is a binding, enforceable obligation to, to pay the agreed-upon compensation, Chesed Lavram, and not to, not to use this knowledge anywhere else, not to open your own competing factory, not to work for somebody else. You, you can't pay any other form of compensation because that's not what you agree to. The, the agreement is binding. The agreement that you agree to was that the compensation would be in the form of you refraining from competing. And if you yourself open a competing business or you work for somebody else and you take advantage of the stuff that he taught you, then you will be, you, you will be over the lav of Los Ashok and you're also over the Pasuk of Hain Tzedek, the, that's one of the sources for the moral obligation to keep your word. One, one, one thing that leaves me a little bit puzzled about his analysis is that he repeatedly says if you take advantage of the information that he provided you. He, he seems to be implying that if you would open a competing business without using the information, I'm not sure that's possible, but if you would open a, if you would open a business without using the information, that would be okay. I'm not sure why. If he stipulated that, that the compensation for teaching was you won't open a business, period, whatever information you use, even if you use someone else's techniques or someone else's uh, methods, that I'm not sure why that wouldn't be a valid stipulation, unless in his case that the particular stipulation was that you can't use you can't use your information, the one that I taught you, but you can use other people's techniques. I'm not sure, but I would think in principle that if if the logic is either Hin Sedek, Hain Sedek, you're obligated to keep your word, or the logic is this is the agreed upon compensation that I won't compete. 
Presumably, you could stipulate that even if you won't be competing based on the information he taught you. If that's what you stipulated, I would assume that's what you stipulated. I, I keep being reminded of a... Of a uh, every time I discuss this topic, I, I, I'm constantly reminded of a, an old Dilbert cartoon where the engineer, Dilbert, I guess, is, uh, is, leaving, a, is leaving a big company... And they tell him, the, the, one of the, the devil boss or somebody, one of, the, one of the, the devil HR guys, somebody tells him, like, you know that you signed a, a contract that any information, any knowledge that you acquired on this job belongs to us and you can't take it with you. So Dilbert looks puzzled and he says, it's in my head. How, how can I not take it with me? In the, last pane, in the last panel of the comic, you see him hooked up to some kind of diabolical machine, like a giant vacuum is, is, hooked, is attached to his head. His head is being shrunken into some... Is being, all his knowledge is being vacuumed out and uh, taken back by the company. So uh, obviously that's not something you can do in halacha exactly, but the, the, the point is, if you stipulate in advance that, that in, in exchange for the acquisition of this information they're providing you, you can't... Uh, that you can't use it somewhere else. So the post are telling us that is a valid and binding stipulation, both in terms of the laws of employment and in terms of the law, in terms of the law, the, the rule of Hinsadnik, the moral obligation to keep your word. You're not allowed to take that, that knowledge and use it anywhere else. Again, it, it, it seems a little odd because the post, they're all emphasizing that he provided you with a valuable service. We see the company as simply providing you with the tools that you needed to do your job with this company. So it, it's, but nevertheless, that is a valuable service. Objectively, knowing this information, which is potentially useful to you in the industry at large, that is something that they provide. They have the right to charge you for that. They don't, but uh, but if they stipulate uh, a non-compete, then that would be then that would be something that 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 would be enforceable based on this this logic that it's Los Ashok that it's a violation of your obligation to pay compensation for services received. Now, all this, of course, all these arguments, except for the Hintetic argument, all these arguments, uh, this main argument we've been discussing, obviously is only relevant insofar as he provided you with a service. If the, if the boss hires you without training you, and he simply says, I, I know we're a great company to work with, if you want to have the privilege of working for us and getting paid a salary by us, you have to agree not to compete, that might not be binding because if they haven't provided you with any, uh, if they haven't provided you with any service, there's no scarpula. But in so, but in their cases, the the non-compete was 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 explicitly established in in, in in consideration for the for the knowledge for the education we're providing you. You're agreeing not to compete. Then, in that case, at least it's binding under the laws of Skiris Polem. The last argument that the Netzach Israel makes that it's also Hintzedek, that would apply in any case, even if there were no, even if there was no, even if there was no knowledge received, even if there was nothing uh, gained by the employer, the employee, besides his salary. Once he agreed not to compete, well, whatever the reason was, then if he agreed, he agreed. If he agreed, there's then he's bound to keep his word under the under the rules of Hintzedek. But uh, the primary argument that the Chassam Sofer and the Chassid Lavram and the Netzach Yisrael make. That the primary argument that the obligation is to, is as a form of a payment for services rendered. Obviously, that's limited to a case where the employee actually received services. He actually received valuable information, some kind of valuable education. <coughs> Last Yuva we'll take a look at just briefly is in the Sefer Mishpatei Torah. Mishpatei Torah is a contemporary work, several volumes by Rav Tzvi Spitz. Rav Tzvi Spitz is a prominent Dayan and Choshen Mishpat expert in Eretz Yisrael. Mishpatei Torah are, is a popular work because the, it, it is very... I think his cases might be artificial. He, they're also written in the form of Shalos and Chuvas kind of, but I think I have the impression his cases are more artificial. 
but his cases are, well, he writes very lucidly. He has a kind of uh, engaging and very digestible style. A lot of his work has been translated into English. The write-ups of Shiurim he gave on these topics it floats around online. The Mishpat Yatara is, uh, he can be a little bit opinionated sometimes. He has, I, I, I don't always see that his conclusions are necessarily uh, required by the sources he brings, but he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a substantial Talmud Chacham and a well-renowned Dayan in Eretz Yisrael. He writes as follows. Ruvain Laman Eitzel Balmalach Alasas Batim Lutzfilim. Ruvain apprenticed to a Batimacher to, to learn how to make Batim for Tfilim. It's highly skilled labor and it's, uh, it's apparently a fairly lucrative profession. Anyone who's bought Tfilim, bought a good pair of Tfilim recently, probably can appreciate that. I, I, actually, I, I don't know. The, the fact that you pay a lot of money for the Batim doesn't, doesn't speak to the question of what their costs are, but my impression is that their costs are substantially lower than you pay and you're paying for the highly skilled labor and time. But the agreement was Shemruven Mishayev Lavod Raketzlo. Ruven committed to work only for this boss, for the master who taught him the Meshach Banalimud, for the duration of the apprenticeship, the Gam Laachemi Kane Meshach Arbashan. So this is the first non compete agreement that we've seen tonight, which was limited in the way that modern non compete agreements typically are, only for a for a relatively constrained, limited period of time. In his case, it was for the duration of the apprenticeship plus four more years. And now, now, obviously, if he was committing him to work for nobody else, he agreed that he would pay him a minimum price. But he agreed, I'll pay you at least, uh, sal- I'll guarantee you a salary of this much, and, and, and you, if you work for me, and you agree that you're not going to work for anybody else for the duration of the apprenticeship plus four years. Um, so he can't work for anybody else, and he also can't, uh, can't do his own batim on, on his own privately. He has to work only through or with the consent of his teacher. Now, they had some falling out, and the employer fired Ruven. He said, I don't want to deal with you anymore. He fired Ruven. I'm not sure if it was during the, the, the apprenticeship or afterward. He fired him after a year. And now, the, they, they had several arguments. So, one of the arguments was, one of, one of the points they argued about was that the employer, the teacher, wanted to enforce the non-compete agreement. He, he fired him. He said, but you still can't work for anybody else for the duration of the, the term of our agreement, four years from the end of our teaching. And he still, he wanted him, he, he, he believed that this, that even though he fired him, he believed that this, that this agreement should remain in force. The non-compete didn't say that it expires if the, if the employer terminates their employment arrangement, and therefore he believed that the agreement should remain in force. Ruvain said, Ruvain, the, the, the student, said, what do you mean? I'm happy to keep working for you, he says. I'm willing to abide by our initial agreement. You fired me. You don't want me to work for you, he says. So then uh, our, whole agreement, uh, our whole agreement is no longer in force, he felt. Because he says, let's be reasonable, he said. He said, you want me to... I'm, I'm, was, apparently this was one year after he finished, after, one year after he finished the apprenticeship, after he started the working from an earnest. He had three more years left in the non-compete agreement. That's when he fired him. So Ruvain says, let's be real. What do you want me to do? I have to make a living. I have to earn a living. He says, you don't let, you, you, I can't work for you because you fired me. You're not going to work for anyone else either in this industry. What am I supposed to do? Not work at all for three years? So that, that's not reasonable, he says. So obviously the, we shouldn't interpret the non-compete as remaining in force if you're firing me and you're not letting me work for you. So 
Rabbi Spitz says, again, he deals with several different questions here, but the, the one we're focusing on, are, non, the, are non-competes binding in general in this context? And B, do they remain in force if he's fired? So he says, the non-compete does, does remain in force in general, he says. In, in general, a non-compete like this would, like we saw in the Chassam Sofer and the Chassid Lavram and the Netzach Yisrael, such a non-compete would generally be binding. He would be obligated to honor his non-compete agreement. However, he says, in this case, where he was fired against his will, he is allowed. He is indeed allowed to, to uh, he is indeed allowed to ignore the terms of the to ignore the non-compete uh, commitment. He still he still owes the he still owes whatever he says. He says that he see he, he he still has to pay the value the value of the work. He says he he does argue that the that 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 that, that for teaching him he owe, he owes a certain amount of money for being taught that he has to pay. He says, but the non-compete agreement. <coughs> the commitment to not work, that, he says, does terminate in this context when he was fired. So the bottom line is, all the posts we've seen tonight, again, so I, I didn't have a chance to go through all his reasoning and see exactly how he arrived at these conclusions, but the bottom line is, all the posts we've seen tonight, for, for one reason or another, all agreed to the basic idea that if you, if you commit to a non-compete agreement in, in exchange for the service of being provided with information, with knowledge, with skills, then that non-compete agreement is binding. It's binding as a form of schiras poelim, compensation for, 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 for service that was provided to you. It may also be binding because of mechustra amana, not enforceable, but binding that you have to keep your word. The post can generally do agree with this, that if a person get, made a non-compete agreement in, in exchange for being taught, he has, to, he has to honor it. If it was not in exchange for being taught, if he didn't receive any, any skills, any useful skills, anything that people pay for, then the main argument of these posts would not apply. However, you'd still be left with the point of the, of the Netzach Yisrael that a person still has to keep his word, that, 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 a person, that a person has to, a person promises something, he has to keep his word. We, we started this whole discussion by mentioning the, the FTC's proposal that non-competes are unfair and therefore they, they, and therefore they violate the FTC Act. So again, we, one would have to study more closely why exactly the FTC thinks such rules are unfair. They write, it prevents workers from seeking better jobs and prevents employers from hiring qualified workers bound by these contracts. I mean, lots of contracts prevent people from doing things that they would like to do. That's what contracts are. If you agree, you agree. All, all kinds of contracts prevent people from doing things they otherwise would rather do and otherwise might be better off doing. But that's the deal you make. If you, if you make a deal to agree not to compete in lieu of being provided with some kind of service, then I'll be Allah. That's binding. Again, the, the, the post, we're not discussing any question of not being fair. Postcom are not discussing questions what, 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 where for some reason this non-compete should be fair. The only one who really does that uh, in the Chuvis we saw tonight would have been the Mishpatea Torah who discusses a non-compete that he, he basically agrees to, to the, the worker's argument that it's not fair to impose a non-compete if you're firing the worker. But other than that, the non-competes were, to, were, were just considered a normal contract which were binding like any other contract. The only question they dealt with was, is there a Kenyan? Is it binding? And the fundamental, the, the fundamental answer to that was, yes, it is binding because of the fundamental principle that even without any kidding at all, if you promise a particular form of compensation to someone for performing a service for you, then you are, and he provides a service, you are obligated to provide that service. Additionally, we have the, the broad rule that there's a moral obligation to keep your word. Even absent any Kenyan or any kind of employment context, there is a moral obligation to keep your word, and that's something that's worth remembering in many other contexts as well.